We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we are doing a book review on Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster. And we are in the middle of chapter two, and actually we're in the middle of section called the middle of the Tanakh. So, how are you today, Bob? I'm good. I've got my cinnamon tea right in my hand as we speak. It's actually called the Good Earth. Man, I don't even know why they make any other kind of tea. Than cinnamon tea? Well, it's, yeah, it has a cinnamon flavor. It's not called cinnamon tea, but the Good Earth has a strong cinnamon flavor and now that they make caffeine free oh man is it good so that means i am ready okay so um like you said we're in the middle of the tanakh what's that stand for again for uh nepaim maybe and ketuvim there you go. The Torah. Okay. Yep. The Torah, the Nevi Torah, which means law. That, that refers to Moses. Moses's writings. So the first five books of the Bible are the Torah, strictly speaking. But you could use that. You could use the word Torah to refer to the whole thing. Right. By right. Metan- by metonymy. But uh, then the N is for the Nevi'im, and that's their word for prophets, plural. When you have a Hebrew word and it ends in I-M, that's like the equivalent of our S. So, yeah, that just means plural. So, for instance, you know, a word that comes up a lot in my conversations, right, the Nephilim. So that's just plural, and that comes from the verb nafal, which means to fall. So we would translate it like the fallen ones. But anyway, back to Tanakh. So that's the T, the N, and then the KH, like you said, is Ketuvim. And that refers to (coughs) the writings. So, and then the A's in there are just to make the word flow. So Tanakh is an acronym for the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that's a common term in Hebrew studies to refer to uh, the arrangement of books, we call it the Old Testament. They would call it the Tanakh. The order's a little different. And so that's what Dempster's in the middle of explaining. So we left off just exactly like you said with this little section, the middle of the Tanakh. So he says there, 
a clearly defined middle. He's been talking about narrative structure, you know, the macro narrative structure. And mostly when he refers to um, narrative, he's talking about sequence, like plot for him is sequence. For me, plot is conflict, but for him, it's more sequence. So um, he's talking about the middle of the Tanakh as far as the sequence. So a clearly defined middle carries this storyline between the beginning and ending of the canon. The story begun in Genesis flows at times, not so smoothly, from the first couple's loss of land and exile through to Abraham's call, Israel's exile in Egypt, the exodus, and the possession of the promised land, followed by the institution of the Davidic dynasty, the loss of land culminating in the exile of Judah. The last narrative note before the interruption of this story is the favor shown to Jehoiakim, the exiled Davidic king in Babylon. That's Second Kings 25. This historical sequence of events from Genesis to Kings is disrupted by a body of poetic literature that functions to provide a pause in the storyline to reflect it on the tragedy of the exile, its causes and significance. So uh, when, when the section is called the middle of the Tanakh, this is what he's referring to, this pause in mm -hmm. the storyline, right? And the reflection back upon the um, captivity, the Babylonian, cap the exile. So it, this is really interesting what he says next. It is here that a profound dialogue occurs in which God addresses Israel in the first person through the voice of the prophets. And Israel addresses God in the first person through the voices of the Psalms. This I thou pause provides important perspective on the story backward and retrospect and forward and prospect. So I've always thought, you know, the, what he refers to there is, you know, Israel speaking back to God in the first person. I've always seen that as like Proverbs are in that mm -hmm. group of writings, for instance. So I've always uh, in my own mind kind of categorized it as wisdom from the ground up and then you know, the prophets were wisdom from heaven down. And that's kind of interesting that the way he explained it, though. I think his way is a lot better, but I know exactly what he's saying. You know, the prophets are God speaking to his people directly. Right. And, and the writings are is mankind going, well, this is how it looks to me from down here. <laughs> you know, under inspiration, of course. Uh -huh. So, so then he says, significantly, the first book of this commentary, Jeremiah, indicates that exile is not God's final word. Destruction, uprooting, tearing down, and smashing will give way to building and planting and so on. So, but we don't usually think of Jeremiah, do we, as the, 
first of the prophets. No. Right? I don't. The whole reordering thing is interesting to me. Yeah, me too. But they would call him like the latter prophets. And they call, in the Tanakh, they call uh, Joshua the first of the former prophets. So kind of interesting, an interesting take on it. But a paragraph down is something significant I really want to look at. I'm going to read the paragraph so we have a running start on the sentence I want to pause over. The canon's closure with chronicles registers a powerful impact. Jeremiah's prophecy has begun the long chain of events leading to the end of the exile and the realization of the kingdom of God on earth. Even though the exile's over, in a literal sense, it's just beginning. There will be a long wait. But the Danielic clock has started ticking. So here's the important sentence I wanted to get to. The command of a foreign king named Messiah in the biblical text, who has ended the rule of Babylon, presages the coming of another Messiah, who will not only end the world order of Babylon, but also establish a new one, the kingdom of God, in which Jerusalem will be the center of the earth, a city set on a hill, radiating light to the nations. So that is such a powerful way to look at it. I'm not sure uh, people tend to realize that, that term Messiah, God uses that of Cyrus, a Persian king, calls him Messiah. And if you look at the, re the biblical significance of Cyrus, you know, remember the one way to describe the scriptures, you could say it's history. You could easily say that. The, right. The, the right the Bible's a history book, but it's theological history. So <clears throat> I'm not sure people would phrase it the way Dempster did, like a like a scholar, a secular scholar would know obviously who Cyrus is, and he, that he you know led Persia, they conquered Babylon, and then started you know the reign, the world dominion of the Medo-Persian Empire, but the significance of that king is that he ended Babylon's rule. Mm -hmm. And I so if you thought of it that way, I know, isn't that cool? And so then if, if he was the model, you know, why would God call him the Messiah Cyrus? Not, not the Messiah, but a Messiah. Right. But because he ended Babylon's rule. And that's such a significant way to look at Jesus because he is the Messiah. And essentially you could sum up the work of his Messiahship as he ends Babylon's rule for good and forever, right? Because Babylon has become a symbol of the world apart from God. Yeah, we're doing Revelation at church. And uh, lots of Babylon in there. Oh, boy. And and yet Babylon was not at that time, right? Historically, that was nothing. Mm -hmm. But it became a figure 
And at that time in Revelation, that's Rome, if you had to pinpoint it, right? But really, metaphorically, it represents the whole world in opposition to God. Right. But but that's a great way to look at Jesus. And and obviously it it fits, but we don't tend to look at it that way. We we so personalize it, you know, Jesus is our salvation. You know, the reason I'm going to heaven is Jesus died for me. And we often present the gospel that way to people. But we don't present it like Dempster's presenting it here. And I think that's so valuable. It's so valuable to think through these things, Hampton. I'm so glad that you allowed me to do this book. Which yeah, is very interesting. Very interesting. So here's one uh, sideline kind of application of that. If you told like one of my siblings, you know, we, we were raised together in the same family, but not, not a Christian family. So they are not believers at this time. If, if I tell one of them, you know, Jesus died for your sin, they, I don't have any idea what that is. I mean, there, there would be in a sense, nothing for them to believe because they can't understand that. They have no reference for that. If I say, if I approach it like Dempster's way, hey, Jesus has ended the rule of the, of the world and begun the rule of God. They, can't, they wouldn't completely grasp that at all, but they could begin to grasp that. They could begin to grasp it. I'm making a political statement, mm -hmm. right? Remember how many times I've, I've said, uh, to me, the Bible's the most political book I've ever read. It's about who's going to run the earth and, and so on. You, you understand what I'm saying? They could at least begin to grasp that. But, you know, Jesus died for your sin. I'm not believe, uh, belittling that at all in a gospel presentation, but my family wouldn't understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So I really like this. So then that leads us to the, uh, that's like the close of that chapter. So now we're on, that was all introduction in Dempster's thinking. So now we're on a section of his book called, it almost brings me to tears, right? Dominion lost, the rise and fall of Israel. Oh, boy. Kind of wish we had a little more dominion right now. Yes, that would be good. <laughs> so, not dominion voting machine. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, but it's a great connection. Now, see, now you're going to rabbit trail me, but I'll, I'll stay on track. <clears throat> Okay, but, but even maybe one sentence, right? Just the name of that should shouldn't that set everybody's mind reeling? Yeah, ironic. Wow. So anyway, so we're in chapter three now. This is the chapter that begins this section, and it's called the narrative storyline begins. And, of course, with Genesis. So here's what I'd like to do. And I've, you've been so good about bearing with me on this stuff. But I want to read Genesis 1 and 2. So everyone has that fresh in their mind while we then look at Dempster. Because I don't know how many times I've had conversations with people. And I'll, I'll make a reference to something. 
and they'll nod their head. And I know they don't know what I'm talking about. Right. And I'm not usually that good at chapter and verse. If somebody says to me, you know, oh, Colossians 3, 2, or I don't no verse particularly pops into my mind. You know, I'm, I might do just like the folks I'm complaining about. I might nod my head like I know what's going on, but I really don't. So, of course, people have a general understanding of Genesis 1 and 2, but I want to read it. And I want to set this up because here, here's what I want to do. You know my coaching background. And imagine your son was a butterflyer. I mean, within the whole context of swimming, probably his best stroke, at least in my estimation, was butterfly. Yeah. And he, he had a unique butterfly in this sense. The more tired he got, the better his stroke got. And I've, I've not seen that before. I've seen great butterflyers, but not guys that got better the more tired they got. So... I'm sure he never really appreciated that observation because for me, that just translated to making him do more butterflies. Do more. <laughs> yeah. Right. The flyle, he used to call it, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. The mile butterfly, we used to call it the flyle. Oh, that was, I might do that tonight just now that it's come to, come to my mind. But anyway, so imagine, you know, having Josiah, your son, swim a hundred butterfly and we filmed him. And then when he got out, okay, let's, let's see what you look like in the water. And so we do. And then in comparison, I say, now let's look at a hundred butterfly by Michael Phelps. And it would look different. I mean, Josiah actually was a very good butterflyer. So the stroke wouldn't necessarily look too different, but there would be subtle differences, mm-hmm. right? That would add up to a vast difference. So when I read Genesis now, I want people to concentrate on it in the sense of how are they reading that? How are they hearing it? What nuggets are they pulling out of there? Uh, one way to say it is this, are they picking up what Moses is putting down? And then, so after we read Genesis 1 and 2, then we'll read Dempster. Because Dempster, in, in my opinion, is one, there could be plenty, but he's one of the great readers of the text, in my estimation. So you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to look at our own 100 fly so to speak then we're going to look at Dempster's 100 fly. And I, I hope it's instructive. So <clears throat> here's Genesis. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without shape and empty and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. But the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. So God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness night. There was evening. There was morning 
marking the first day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. It was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening. There was morning. A second day. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. It was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. God said, let the land produce vegetation, plants yielding seeds and trees on the land bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. It was so. The land produced vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, a third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs to indicate seasons and days and years. Let them serve as lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. It was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night. He made the stars also. God placed the lights in the expanse of the sky to shine on the earth, to preside over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, a fourth day. God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. God created the great sea creatures and every living and moving thing with which the water swarmed according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind, God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the water and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, cattle, creeping things and wild animals, each according to its kind. It was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the cattle according to their kinds, and all the creatures that creep along the ground according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and every creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I now give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the entire earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. 
and to all the animals of the earth and to every bird of the air and to all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. It was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day, all the work that he had been doing. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. There was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted an orchard in the east, in Eden, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. Now a river flows from Eden to water the orchard, and from there it divides into four head streams. The name of the first is Pishon, and it runs through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold of that land is pure. Pearls and lapis lazuli are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it runs through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and to maintain it. Then the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat fruit from every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a companion for him who corresponds to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field, every bird of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man named all the animals, the birds of the air, the living creatures of the field. But for Adam, no companion who corresponded to him was found. <coughs> so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took part of the man's side, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one 
will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother, then unites with his wife, and they become a new family. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So thank you, Hampton, for letting me read that. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. So I'm hoping that as we read that, observations were being made. Um, So now, with that in mind, let's read Dempster. Because my whole goal with... uh, with the, this book that we're going through, Dempster's book, Dominion and Dynasty, is that our listeners would become better readers of the biblical text. I mean, in my mind, it's like, you know, what do I do every day? Go to the pool and hope that the children become better swimmers. So, you know, my ministry, biblically speaking, essentially would boil down to that, hoping that listeners become better readers. And the way to do that, Dempster has said so far, is you keep reading, right? The metaphor he's used is you you need a lens to read the biblical text. And how do you get your prescription right? You read. And the biblical text itself will begin to form your lens. So let's read Dempster. Chapter 3. The narrative storyline begins, and then his little subheading, these are the generations of. So the first chapter of Genesis introduces not only the text of Genesis, but the text of the Tanakh. Consequently, it has important literary and theological stature. It functions as a hermeneutical prologue introducing some of the main themes of the larger text. Let's pause just briefly. So hermeneutical, again, just substitute the word interpretation. So what we just read is the lens through which to see the rest of the Tanakh. Is that a new thought? Yes. Okay, we're making progress. (laughs) In Genesis, there are 11 genealogical formulas which follow Genesis 1 and 2, or 1, 1 through 2, 3. Let me pause there. So we've kind of broken up the text artificially. You know, it it's not necessarily wrong to have chapters in the Bible at, at all, really. But the break we have really should be at chapter 2, verse 3. All, from 1, 1 to 2, 3 is one right. chapter, right? You know, why we've broken it the way we have, I don't actually know. But it's a there's a clear break in 2, 4. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Well, I, so th- the, you talk about the new thought, I mean. I've heard that, you know, you break the Genesis up by the Toledotes. Right. That's what he's saying here. What he's saying, but not seeing that as a, a a way to, you know, tell the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament. Right. Well, the lens. Yeah. Lens for that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so you, you mentioned the Hebrew word Toledot, and that's what he's referring to. We translate that like 
account or generations, right? These are the accounts of, or these are the generations of. And he's saying there are 11 of those after 1, 1 to 2, 3. So 11 genealogical formulas. At various points, splitting up the content into chapters. It's almost like we we should have done it that way. You know what I mean? Each each toldot should have been its own chapter. Yeah, in, yeah, I, that, it is an interesting thought. You yeah. know, why did who who put the book the chapter and verse numbers in? Yeah, and, I, and there um, is a, that mm -hmm. is there is an answer to that. There is a specific. I think it was in the Middle Ages. I'll see if I can pull that out for next time. But you know, the joke is, well, he was doing it on horseback, so you know, his his pen bounced up and down. That's why we got some of the weird divisions that we have. But, but there, you know, there Dan is Wallace, a specific I went, to, guy. I went to a thing at the Center for New Testament Studies or something. MT, I can't remember the abbreviation, but he, you know, he goes and finds all these old manuscripts and still looking for them and photographing the old ones and mm -hmm. that. But I think it's uh, First John where the the there are three that bear witness. The mm -hmm. well, anyway, he said that um, they have one manuscript, and it's supposed to be from before. I don't remember what uh, you know. Supposed to be an ancient manuscript, but you know that it was it was edited, and he said you know it was edited after Stephanus Stephanus put uh, in the right. verse numbers. Oh, that's right. Because that that part that verse is actually inserted in the margin, and it's got, I think, five colon seven, you know, written by it. Mm -hmm. They didn't do the verse numbers until uh, fifteen something fifteen, yeah. 15. and so <clears throat> you know that that was a later edition because there were you know the guy actually had the verse number written right, yeah. You know, so that's the way to. I just found that so interesting because I'd not heard that before. Yeah. It's like when, you know, some of those shows on TV now, like um, the crime shows, you know, will emphasize the detail of how you could catch a criminal, right, with DNA or, or right, other things. Right. And it, it's almost like Dan Wallace is that on a biblical text. Yeah. Right. He's looking for all these little clues by which you could date things and so on. <clears throat> So uh, back to Dempster says the usual formula formulaic pattern is worded. These are the generations of this formula introduces either a genealogical list or a narrative that has as its goal, a descendant indicated or implied by the list. The narratives alternate with the list to provide the main storyline of Genesis. The pattern is as follows. I'm just going to briefly, you know, I'm not going to read this word for word, but so in the, in one, one through two, three, that's the creation. Then the first genealogy, genealogy two. And so, and it goes through Genesis, right? So in a macro way, unless you are looking through that kind of lens, like you, you have in your mind these uh, 11 divisions of these are the accounts of, 
well, you're not picking up what Moses is putting down. Right. It doesn't it doesn't mean you're not picking up, you know, valuable material for you. You're reading God's word. It's going in, but you're not picking you're you're not swimming like Phelps yet. <laughs> okay. You're just you're just getting down to the other end, right? You're not you're not swimming like he is. And it for me that's so cool. And I've got a question. This just occurred to me, Hampton, so I want to spit it out there because one of the things I like about our podcast is <clears throat> At least I feel this way. I can say whatever I want. And but part of why I feel that is because I know you'll reel me back in if I get too far off the tracks. But okay. <laughs> does it does it strike you that there are 11 and not 12 of those things? I hadn't thought of that. I mean, often when you see numbers, we're going to start talking about numbers in a second. It's seven or right. 12, or four, sometimes, or 10. Mm-hmm. And those are their critical numbers, like 490 years, right? 70 times seven, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, right? So right. those num- numbers are so, pro- why are there 11 of these? Is it, and, and not 12, doesn't it beg the question, is there a 12th one coming somewhere? Good thought. And yeah, I mean, that that's how I read that. Mm-hmm. Like, like as a, for instance, Solomon's throne, he, when he was king, he was a, the world leader. You, you won't really see that in history books, secular history books, because Israel never really conquered, right? It, it wasn't, they'd never felt their responsibility was to go subdue all the other nations and rule. They, they just were the dominant nation, but they, they didn't conquer like the other nations do. Right. But, but when he was king, he, he was so prominent. I mean, all the world knew that, right? You have visits from the Queen of Sheba, right? That, that's the point of that passage is that the, they were so prominent that the other nations would come to Solomon to see how to do it. To, right. see, to see how to run your kingdom. Well, as part of that, he had this famous throne, the, the throne of Solomon, like the physical structure itself was so um, imposing. You know, the lion throne of Solomon had six steps. Well, why not seven? <laughs> you know, yeah. they, come on, that's their big number. Just put one more step in there. Right, make them different height, do whatever you have to do as a craftsman to make seven. But they made six, which makes you think, ah, so what is seven? Is Solomon himself the seventh step? Or are they saying this is just an earthly throne? So it doesn't get seven, it just gets six. You know, it's it just makes you I'm not sure there's a specific answer. But it makes you think like that. And I, I'm sure that's how the biblical authors want you to think. Six, six is the number of man. Right. And that's a famous number, right? Yeah. That's going to be the ultimate bad guy. So, it's, you know, it says if God had a number, it'd be 777. But the Antichrist is 666. Ah, he's just a little short each time. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Okay, so anyway, back to Dempster. So Genesis is broken, outlined, if you will, by Moses, by those 11 occurrences of that phrase. These are the generations of. And by the way, fitting that back into what Dempster's already said, we have learned that when you see genealogy, you think dynasty. And, right? And when you see land, you think dominion. So 11 times in Genesis, you should be thinking dynasty. These are the generations of. Okay. Okay. So last little paragraph after that, he says, the first words of the Tanakh's masterful literary introduction read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In a text that stresses the importance of the number seven. It is no accident that the first verse of the Hebrew text has seven words. Okay, did that occur to our listeners? <laughs> and yeah. by the way, it, remember, Moses didn't write in verse, he didn't write a big one and then a colon and then a smaller one, but he did write a first sentence. Right. And that sentence has seven words. And unless you pick that up, you're not swimming like Phelps. You're swimming like our beginner kids. You're well, like we in, we wouldn't have in the that. we wouldn't have picked that up because it's ten words in English. Correct correct. That's correct too. But <clears throat> unless you fig find out that information, you're like our discovery group swimmers. Right. Where you where you better be standing close to the pool when you're coaching them because you might have to go in and grab them. That that's that's the level they're at. You ever had to do that? I have. Yeah, I have. Um so in the text that stresses the importance of the number seven, it is no accident that the first verse of the Hebrew text has seven words. Moreover, as will be seen. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 has many linguistic echoes in the ensuing narrative. Did you hear echoes when we read the text? I, I didn't. I'm confessing my, let me tell you, I'm no Phelps. I'm, I'm like a discovery group swimmer. God speaks directly, creating the world and its inhabitants. And the expression, God said, is heard 10 times the audience experiences an opportunity to get a God's eye view of the world. And at the beginning, it is good. A fact that itself bears repeating seven times. And I'm sure people heard that when I read that, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, right. I said it was good, but did they hear that seven times? And and I, what we I wasn't counting. I know, I know, I wouldn't either. But what what's the signet? You know, okay, so it was seven times. Well, so what? Well, what does the num number seven represent in the Jewish worldview? Perfection. Yeah, in, in the sense of that's right. In the sense of completion. So that's how that section should be read. So then 
So you have uh, seven times, you know, it is good. The agent of creation is never in doubt. It's always God doing it. Mm-hmm. 35 times. Now, who cares about a number 34? Why would that be a significant number? I don't so, know. It's a multiple of seven. Oh, okay. Right? Five times seven. So 35 times the name of God is used always as a subject of a verb. Formal closure of this opening chapter is signaled by a thematic closure. God completes his creation by resting on the seventh day. So let's pause there a sec before we look at this next section. That's fascinating to me. I think we have this picture. (laughs) I say I think we do because I sort of have it in my mind and I constantly have to adjust it because you know, I know it's not right, but when, when the text says God rested, <laughs> I mean, he's not in his easy chair, right? He didn't get off his throne and go lay down on his bed or something and took a nap. It, so it, it, it doesn't mean rest. He wasn't tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of the things I give the swimmers to do, you know, they that wouldn't tire God out at all. But um, because he's omnipotent, right? He doesn't get tired. So it, it doesn't mean rest in that sense. It, the other thing, Dempster's going to mention this, but he's not really going to go into this. So I'm going to throw it out there for everybody to hold in their mind. This picture that Moses is not explicitly stating, but clearly implying is that the... Um, creation is a temple and in temple building in the ancient near east there were seven steps seven processes and number seven was dominion like now we reign right we've put down all the enemies everything's cool now i reign and that's the real essence of that word rest, which does not come across in our culture at all. But it, it's as if God's dominion began on the seventh day, on the first, right? On the first six days, he's, I mean, he's always king. He's always God, but you know what I'm saying, right? He, he's set it up now. Now we just rest. So I want people to consider that, like when you think of your uh, week and how you're going to honor the Sunday, you should have in your mind, you know, now we reign. And and the um, blasphemy of working hard on a Sunday becomes more clear. Because what you're saying by doing, you know, a lot of work on a Sunday is you don't reign. You're not handing it over to God's dominion. You know, what's in our mind is, oh, I got to get X, Y, and Z done. Yeah. So it's a, point. It's, it's interesting. Dempster doesn't go into that much, but that is going on in the text. So anyway, Dempster's next section. Oh, what a great title. And did we have this question in our mind 
before we began to read Genesis 1 and 2. One of the skills of reading is to have questions in your mind beforehand, right? You'll remember what you read a lot more if you come to a text with questions in any text you're reading, any book, any material. Have, have questions formed in your mind before you even begin to read it. So this section is the goal of creation. Did we have that as a question in our mind when we began to read? And if not, we're not swimming like Phelps. Okay. So many scholars have poured over this text. That's an understatement. Right. <laughs> Studying its exquisite artistry. But as far as the larger text, like capital T is concerned. So in other words, that's a reference to Tanakh, right? Mm -hmm. is, this is the beginning, the beginning of everything, not only of time, but also of space. And in particular, of the geographical location for everything that will transpire. Pause over that. So we're reading the geographical location. It's the stage upon which everything's going to take place. Yeah, it's a good word for it. Right? It's the creation. So, and didn't, uh, what's his name? Billy Shakespeare say that? <laughs> all, the all the world's a stage. Yeah, that's true. Right? How accurate was that? Pretty good. So as the form of the text indicates, the universe is created as a place of harmony and order. So you want e-harmony? Here you go. Genesis 1. <laughs> <laughs> so harmony and order. Where each creation is good. That is, it fulfills its function. Okay, that's like an easy sentence, a real quick read. That should be pondered. The essence of the word good at least in Genesis 1, the essence of that word is function. Everything fulfills. I know. We don't, we don't typically think of that. But it, it fulfills its function. So you, if you wanted to preach that, right, if you were a preaching coach instead of a swimming coach, you would say, make sure to emphasize in this text place and purpose that that's a way to wrap your brain around the word function place mm -hmm. and purpose right? right and and people long for that it people that don't have that are almost suicidal right if they don't understand their place and purpose in god's world that's a frustrating place to be mm-hmm so there's great psychological implications from this text as well. But anyway, um, so the, the essence of that definition of the word good is function. Yet, for all the concern with the creation of the universe and its creatures, this text clearly has a goal to which everything in it is directed, namely the creation of humanity on the sixth day everything points to that in that first chapter so i'm not going to read his his quote there but i am going to skip down to 
I'm going to describe a graph, right? You see that on your, your text. Our, our readers can't see the text we're reading from, but imagine if you could. So there's a graph, right? Two axes, number of words on the vertical axes on the left, number of days on the bottom axis, right? So how many words did Moses use to describe the day one? 30. How many did he use to describe day two? Almost 40. How many on day three? About 64. How many on day four? About 64. How many on day five? About 48. How many on day six? 150. <laughs> Right. I mean, it just the visual of that just leaps off the page. Mm -hmm. So when when you give that much airtime to one particular day, that's your goal. And what is that day? What was done on the sixth day? Creation of man, mankind. So the the creation is nothing. Until you put men there, and, and by men, mankind. Right. And, and think of how our culture views mankind as the problem. Right. Not, not the solution, right? But man is the solution. And there's a weird way. Yeah, we have become the problem because of chapter three, which we haven't read yet, but... But, you know, our culture doesn't see mankind ever as being the solution. And yeah. it is. The whole thing was made for man. Well, why is that? Because man is God's image. And the, the essence of image is, you know, to represent God's dominion. When an animal sees you, they see God's dominion. We don't, we don't live that way, but we should. So un unless you're reading that, that way, you're not picking up what Moses is putting down. That's clearly in the, in the text, in a, in a informed, like a good lens reading of Genesis one, that's what's going on. Yeah. And such a contrast with today and, you know, man, we would you have the population control we need to reduce it from what seven billion back to 500 million the climate right. people are saying the man is the problem and yeah i mean yes totally, exactly. totally opposite and, and therefore you know heading for destruction it's so opposite it's headed for destruction but you're not going to get a day seven where God reigns, right? That's it. We could substitute that for the word rest. We're not, we're not going to get a day seven of God's reign unless there's a day six of man's dominion. That's an important way to see it. So I'm going to skip a few pages later on in this text. We get to uh, two words that are critical on day six that have to do with man's dominion. So one way, you know, that I've often presented this to 
to people over the years. Pretty easy to remember, right? Rule and subdue. That's our job description. But in the biblical text, so I'm on page 59. I'll just read this paragraph. I know yours is an ebook, so it's harder to zero in on a page number, but it's when he goes into the two Hebrew words, reda and kabas. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the language used to describe the royal status of a human pair, of the human pair, so Adam and Eve, what, what describes their royal status is unambiguous. When, when you see a person, Hampton, do you think of dominion? No, I don't. I know. I, I do, but not as often as I should. But that that's important. Why, for instance, is there a death penalty in the biblical text? Well, you just struck down the image of God. Mm -hmm. Right? right. <laughs> you you got to pay for that. That 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 isn't just murder. That's that's a theological statement. In which so two second rabbit trail, metaphorically two seconds. <laughs> Did you ever notice? I so this was the first time I really pondered over this was like two days ago. So we're not there yet, but pretty soon we're gonna read about Cain and Abel. And Cain is gonna kill Abel. Why didn't God kill Cain? It's God who instituted the death penalty. Yeah. What? That I really puzzled over that. And not even didn't kill him, but kind of protects him. Right? Put, puts mm -hmm. a mark on him so no one else will hurt him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not saying I have an answer. I was just saying I really That's thought about that. Question. Thought about that a long time the other day. So anyway, the language used to describe the royal status of the human pair is unambiguous. They are to have dominion, that's the Hebrew word, reda, over the earth and subdue it. That's kebas. These words are associated with power and authority. The word reda may have originally denoted the treading activity taking place in a wine press huh so every time i have a, one of my glasses of wine now that's what i'm going to think about okay it's authority <laughs> right treading the wine press and you know it's used that way there's a huge picture of that presented right about the messiah in isaiah Mm -hmm. They they see this figure and they're they're going well why why are you all red oh I've been treading the wine press of the wrath of God so that that verb you know to to walk like to tread upon mm -hmm. is dominion then you see that, that that's important you know as a reader that that when someone is described as walking in the biblical text it's Quite often, you, you have to judge by the context, but it's usually not conveying the idea of travel. It's conveying the idea of dominion, right? So, for instance, imagine this famous scene, Job chapter 1, and Satan shows up at the council of God, 
And God says, where'd you come from? Walking about on the earth. What's he mean? He's the one who has dominion of the earth. That's right. That's right. Surveying. I've, I've been surveying my domain. I've been establishing my dominion. That's what he means. So remember God, another instance saying to Abraham, you know, walk through the promised land. I'm bringing you out of Ur to Canaan. What's Abraham doing most of the years where you read about? He's walking around in Canaan. Taking dominion of his, his land. Dom, it's a dominion. He's not a wanderer. I mean, he is actually a wanderer, but it, that's not the sense that text is conveying. It's conveying dominion. I have never thought of it that way. Yeah. So that Hebrew word, Rada, right? Its its origins are in the wine press. See, that's a, come on. I'm you got to encourage me to drink more. <laughs> so, it, then the other word, kabos. We, we'll get to that. But so, uh, its next occurrence. This is the word Rada after the wine press thing describes Israelites who have authority over indentured servants. They're not to rule them harshly. They're to rule, but not harshly. The word also describes Solomon's shalom producing rule. You know, we've, we've mentioned a number of times over our podcast, Hampton, we were almost there. With Solomon? With Solomon. I mean, history had just about climaxed. There we were. There's God's king. All the end, David had subdued. We were at, we're at the seventh day. David had subdued everything during his reign. When, when Solomon was king, there was, there was no Solomon leads the army against such and such, right? Those enemies had all been put down. Right. It was this, you could look at it like the seventh day. It was there. And, it, you know, the essence of Solomon was that he built the temple. Well, what's that? Remember, I've said Genesis 1 is a temple. Well, so here's Solomon recreating Genesis 1 in essence. And God indwells the temple. Well, what's happened in our story, right? In Genesis 3, we haven't read that this morning, but everybody knows what happened there. The fall. God left the earth. Now there's sin, but he, when Solomon builds the temple, he comes back. Right, he's back on earth. You're you're in Genesis one again with Solomon. You're at the seventh or day. Our favorite saying from I don't remember which book, but there was silver had no value because there was so much gold. Everything was yes, and and did you, was that not mentioned in Genesis one and two? The land of Havilah, where there's gold. Right. So that gold is emblematic of a like a finished product, you know, like, a OK, the wealth is here. Everything's here. Mm-hmm. Now we now we rule. We don't have to go get wealth. It's it's all here. Anyway, I get getting too excited there. but <laughs> So significantly in eschatological context, let's pause. So. You, of course, understand that term, but I think a lot of readers, you know, when you say eschatological, um, 
they don't know what you're talking about. So the, that's the Greek word eschatos just means last. So eschatological uh, end times. Right. Is how you could, you know, what should be going on in your brain, you know, uh, apocalyptic end times, prophecy fulfilled, that kind of thing. So significantly in eschatological context, it depicts, this is the word radar, an ideal messianic king who will emerge from Israel and exercise rule over the kingdom, a star and a scepter. Royal images will arise and defeat the age-old enemies of Israel, exercising dominion from Jacob. An Israelite king will one day rule from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth, and all his enemies will lick the dust. An Israelite priest-king is given the scepter, to rule while sitting at the right hand of God, who puts his enemies under the priest king's feet. This last passage, that's Psalm 110, with its imperative rule powerfully echoes Genesis 1. When you get to Psalm 10, and that there's that command for the Messiah to rule, that's Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. So the, those are the kinds of things a good good reader picks up. What should I pick out of? Okay, here's one thing I wanted to mention about that last paragraph in Dempster. We, we don't typically in our minds associate priesthood with kingship, but ultimately God puts those two together. Right, we typically think of Jesus as king, not necessarily as priest, mm-hmm. but he's he's both. Right, and Adam and Eve were both. So when you see Adam and Eve in Genesis one and two, they are priest kings exercising their dominion. We've had this discussion a couple times. I had this with a a neighbor just last night, but before the fall. What could Adam not do? It's so interesting to think mm-hmm. about, right? I, I don't have an answer for that, but it's a worthwhile ponder. So as for the word kebos, it reinforces radar. And that, that's a right rule and subdue. That's what the concept we're talking about. Wherever it occurs in the Bible, it always means an action in which man reduces something to his use through the application of force. It's used of the subjugation of the land of Canaan. In a similar context, it refers to the Israelite king David, who dedicates to God wealth taken from the subdued enemies in an eschatological passage. Let's, let's pause. So, Again, Solomon builds a temple. Remember, he overlaid that entire thing with gold? Right. Well, where did he get all that? David. Right? David conquered everything, all the enemies around them. Mm-hmm. And not, not, to, not to expand his kingdom, but to subdue their resistance. Right? 
So he took spoils. So when Solomon steps on the throne, he's got a bank account like you wouldn't believe. You could overlay an entire temple with gold and it wouldn't dent what he had. So anyway, in an eschatological passage, the Israelites themselves, aided by Yahweh, will subdue their enemies, perhaps even with sling stones, as David once did. The rest of the canon assumes the royal overtones of Genesis 1. Like, so as we read that passage, were we thinking royalty? Because that's right. That's what Moses was putting down. We probably weren't swimming like Phelps there. Right. Indicating the unique authority assigned to the primal couple and thus to all humanity. Dominion over the world is not to be made over to great individuals, but to the community. No member of mankind is to be excluded from this authority. So, you know, to Adam and Eve rule over the earth. Well, how are you going to do that? You need to have a bunch of kids, right? Because you're not omnipresent. Mm -hmm. So, um, but we don't, I don't think, let's pause here. I don't think people... Remember how we talked about place and purpose within the concept of things being good? Like, right. right? So I, I don't think people see their own lives very often underneath the banner of dominion, that you are here to rule the earth. One of my greatest joys in life, Hampton, was having my daughter. And, you know, about the time, you know, maybe two years old, where she could start to comprehend more right you could start having conversations with her i'd take her out at that time we lived in minturn uh, right along the eagle river and so our, we had a little deck we were on the second floor right a town home i'd take her out onto the deck and we'd look down on that you can picture a beautiful colorado setting right the mountains right in your face it's almost vertical Right. There's forest around this beautiful mountain. And yeah. here's this beautiful. I've been, been on that road a few times. I always think the sun sets so soon here. Yeah, because the walls are so steep of <laughs> right. the mountain, right? You're in the and so then there's this, you know, beautiful river flowing underneath your feet as you look down on it. And I would say a thousand times to Sophia, what's your job, Sophia? She would say to rule the earth then it would i mean what a joy to raise, raise a child like that yeah. you know where, where they could have that almost like that unfettered view of creation you know you're not in a city with concrete walls you're looking at god's creation even though it's fallen now right but it's still a beautiful leftover piece mm -hmm. of the and say this is your job to to run this so whatever your vocation is it's fine, but it, keep in mind, it's under the banner of your dominion over the earth. So I'm a coach. How, how does swim coaching fit under that? Well, I'm not really just coaching swimming, right? I'm teaching them about life way more than I am swimming, actually. Right. And teaching about life is teaching about dominion. Right. If you're if you're going to be a king, you've, you've got to be responsible 
right? So you got to be on time to swimming. There's, you, you know what I'm saying? It, every vocation fits under that banner. Well, I was just thinking about my oldest son. He's in the drainage business. Sure. And so, you know, he's uh, got to figure out how to deal with, help people deal with these big Texas rains that, you know, flood their yard or their, their house. And yes, taking dominion in, in the sense that he's, so do we in a French drain to redirect the water and you know send it where he wants it? He's exactly doing that. Yeah. We are called to that. It doesn't mean just you know go live in the trees. It it means rule this place. It needs dominion. If you just let have you ever seen any I'm not a movie guy, Hampton. <laughs> but have you ever seen any of those movies that are, are like have an apocalyptic setting? Like, like there was a great war on earth mm-hmm. and the, here's the last. Yeah, I love those. Yeah. Well, usually how's it look? Not that great, right? The cities are all overgrown with shrubs, right? It, it doesn't look like it should look typically. And it's right. The, the creation is nothing until mankind is here it was the whole goal of god's creation week so i don't know how we're doing on time we're probably about up i mean we could go on forever with this we're we're gonna continue next week but i mean this is conversation that'll last you a lifetime but it's stuff to think about so that was my goal today was to compare our own reading with dempster's reading like, like it was a swimming event and Dempster at this point would probably beat us in a hundred fly. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But if we keep practicing, we'll catch up to him. Yeah. He's bringing out a ton of stuff that I'd never thought about. Okay. Well, very good. And I will talk to you next time. Thank you, Hampton. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect.